Hey, welcome everybody to Girl Power. Our music didn't go on like it was supposed to, so forgive <laughs> us. We'll get this figured out. Um, you know, the little play thing kept spinning and spinning and spinning, and it wasn't working. So we'll have to get that worked out. It works good <laughs> when I was playing with it. Anyway, this is Girl Power Hour, and we are in part two of our Toxic Parents. And Tasha, how are you? I'm good. I'm, you know, I hear everybody's having problems with allergies right now. Those of you that are listening that aren't in West Texas, that is where we are, and um, it's very windy, eh? and so we've had a, a lot of um, dry air as of recent. So it's been pretty tough on people with allergies because there's a lot of wind and a lot of dirt and a lot of pollen and all sorts of things rolling around in the air. And luckily, I don't have allergies, but um, if you hear my dogs snore, <laughs> they do, and they are just zonked out right now. Allergies have hit them hard, so I had to give them both some Benadryl just to uh, keep them from coughing and sneezing. So, uh, again, uh, for all of you out there with allergies, I'm sorry. I know this is tough, so uh, best wishes yeah, to each of you. Yeah, I can't take anything for it because it puts me to sleep, and I thought, well, shoot, I can't take anything this morning. Right. I had to be awake at three. <laughs> I would not be awake at three, unfortunately, after this. Um, yeah, I, and plus, you know, you have the dogs to take care of and things to do. And it's like, okay, wait, is, do I take something or do I just suffer through it? And I, I didn't have allergies like that before I moved here. Mm-hmm. So thank you, Lubbock. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I know. So if I lose my voice, um, it's up to Tasha to uh, to take over, <laughs> and and I'm just glad that it's radio and not TV because I don't know what the heck my hair is doing today. Um, <laughs> ah, looked in the mirror just a few minutes ago, and I thought, really. I'm not sure how that happened. <laughs> so, you say things like that, and it makes me want to tell you to post a picture on our page so people can see what No, you know I don't do selfies. <laughs> I very seldom do a selfie, <clears throat> and I hate getting my picture taken. I just don't like pictures. Never have, never will. <clears throat> um, but, yeah, uh, I don't do selfies, and um, it would scare everybody if I did. So. <laughs> that is it's not true. Well, with this hair going, like, my hair's always a little wild and crazy, but, um, yeah, it's Medusa style. So, <laughs> anyway, so back to our exploration of the book Toxic Parents Overcoming the Hurtful Legacy and Reclaiming Your Life by Susan Forward. Um Last week, we got a ton of information about the different kinds of toxic parents, and we had some more of that coming up, didn't we, Tasha? Yes, we do. We have uh, three more um, versions of toxic parents, and then and then some discussions on family, and then, of course, the most important part is reclaiming your life, so we'll discuss that mm-hmm. as well. Okay. Well, take it away, because I'm ready. 
Well, you know, let me apologize in advance for how much information we are just throwing at everyone and say to you again, as I always do when we reference a book, that by no means are we covering anywhere near the information that is in this book, Mm -hmm. and by no means am I covering all the most significant pieces of it. There are actually times when I have to skip over stuff I really don't want to skip over, just in the interest of time. And so please, if you're struggling with overcoming um, the hurtful legacy of your toxic parents, if you have experienced um, maybe some of these traits in yourself, if you just want to look at the possibility that maybe your parents were indeed toxic, or if you just want information, maybe you're a helping professional or just someone who likes to read helpful books, um, just it's a good one to have. It's uh, a New York Times bestseller, and uh, it's one that I highly recommend, especially for helping professionals, to have in your bookshelf as a reference and resource for your clients. Um, I will be covering some information today, and again, I'm not covering all that, that needs to be covered, but I want to give a quick, just as a little bit of a prevention, I do want to say we are going to be covering not just verbal and physical abusers, but also sexual abusers, and in no way am I saying it just as in a minimal, but those three are, we will be covering today. If for some reason you think that listening to this will trigger you and somehow I do want to give a trigger warning, um, I know sometimes when we've experienced abuse like this, if you're just coming out of it, if you are currently experiencing it, if it's something you haven't treated yet with a counselor, um, it may not be something you necessarily want to listen to um, without a friend nearby or someone you can talk to either while listening to the show or after. So. It isn't, I'm not saying or doing anything today that should hurt you, but at the same time, anytime we're talking about, um, you know, our emotional traumas, physical traumas, sexual traumas, obviously, um, it can be a pretty intense and uncomfortable emotional experience. And so having said that, I just want to let you all know that if that is something that you're concerned about, you know, just make sure that maybe you listen at a time, because we are archived. Our shows are archived. You can hear them. You don't have to listen live. You can hear them at a later time when it's um, maybe a, in a more safe environment for you or in a place where you have a friend that you can talk to or a counselor you can call. So I'm just putting that out there just in case that's an issue for some of you. I want to uh, start with just where we left off last week, which was um, – verbal abusers. That's where we were going to to begin. And I'm just going to read a a little bit of what she wrote here. The power of cruel words. Most parents will occasionally say something derogatory to their children. This is not necessarily verbal abuse, but it is abusive to launch frequent verbal attacks on a child's appearance, intelligence, competence, or value as a human being. Like controlling parents, verbal abusers have two distinct styles. There are those who attack directly, openly, viciously, degrading their children. They may call their children stupid, worthless, or ugly. They may say that they wish their child had never been born. They are oblivious to their child's feelings and no long-term effects of their constant assaults on their children's, oh, I'm sorry, and to the long-term effects of their constant assaults on their child's developing self-image. So in other words, they just simply don't consider the child's feelings or any effects that their words will have. Other verbal abusers are more indirect, 
assailing the child with a constant barrage of teasing, sarcasm, insulting nicknames, and subtle put-downs. These parents often hide their abuse behind the facade of humor. They make little jokes like, the last time I saw a nose that big was was on Mount Rushmore. That's a good-looking jacket for a clown. You must have been home sick the day they passed out brains. If the child or any other family member complains, the abuser invariably accuses him or her of lacking a sense of humor. She knows I'm only kidding, he'll say, as if the victim of his abuse were a co-conspirator. And let me just say quickly, with regard to that, as a child, I experienced this quite a bit, and uh, I experienced all sorts of abuse. And this was one, and because I was experiencing so many levels of abuse, certainly any level of teasing was going to make it even worse. Certainly kids go through teasing as children in school. That is equally as abusive. But from their parents, obviously, that's supposed to be their safe place, their sanctuary. Their home is supposed to be their safe place, and those are supposed to be their safe people. And when their safe people aren't safe, it's a very um, very trying childhood experience and very traumatizing, and it usually leads to PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And when a child is experiencing it, and then they do have the courage to speak out against it, and then they're told that they simply don't have a sense of humor, or in my case, they're told that they're just too sensitive. Um, I just really I really have a difficult time with that. I really have a problem with that. I really have a hard time not calling that just plain evil because a child finally stands up for themselves, and then, of course, their abuser distorts them and, of course, makes it seem like it's their fault that they're just seeing it wrong. And... Um, if you see that in your life, if you've seen that in your life, um, that is distortion, and that is one of the tactics abusers use to continue to do what they do. So by all means, heal that within yourself. If you say the sky is blue, it's blue. If someone tries to tell you it's purple, they're distorting you and your experience. Um, I'm not reading through this entire chapter, as I won't read through any of these entirely. So again... At the book if you would like to read more. Um, but in this particular chapter on verbal abuse, she also says, talks about parents that say, I'm only saying this for your own good. And I'm sure many of us have heard that before as well. Many parents dish out their verbal abuse under the guise of guidance to justify cruel and denigrating remarks. They use rationalization such as, I'm trying to help you become a better person. Or it's a tough world and we're teaching you to take it. Because this abuse wears the protective mask of education, it is especially difficult for the adult child to acknowledge its destructiveness. In fact, you'll hear adult children say, well, they were only trying to help me because that's what they heard from their parents, which, in fact, it's not help. (laughs) Um, Abuse under the skies of help is not help. It's abuse. Then she touches on the perfectionist parents. The impossible expectation that children be perfect is another common trigger for severe verbal attacks. Many verbally abusive parents are themselves high achievers, but all too often their homes become dumping grounds for career stress. Alcoholic parents may also make impossible demands on their children, then use their children's failure to justify their drinking. Perfectionist parents seem to operate under the illusion that if they can just get their children to be perfect, they will be a perfect family. They put the burden of stability on the child to avoid facing the fact that they, as parents, cannot provide it. The child fails and becomes the scapegoat for family problems. Once again, the child is saddled with the blame. Children need to make mistakes and discover that it's not the end of the world. 
That's how they gain the confidence to try new things in life. Toxic parents impose unobtainable goals, impossible expectations, and ever-changing rules on their children. They expect their children to respond with a degree of maturity that can come only from life experiences that are inaccessible to a child. Children are not miniature adults, but toxic parents expect them to act as if they are. I think that's very key. Um, had that issue growing up myself. I know many of you did as well. Um, I know some of our listeners personally, so I know that for a fact. And one of the things that always really hurt me deeply was the fact that I had to be perfect. You know, um, I was watching my family. I mean, I was raised in addiction and, you know, abuse. I fought drug addiction and active drug addiction. Um, so clearly everyone was making mistakes, but I had to be perfect. That was put on my shoulders. I couldn't make mistakes. And more importantly, I couldn't just be human. And I, I, I wasn't really allowed to make the mistakes that even my friends were making, to do the things that my friends were doing, and to be a kid, you know, to explore uh, different paths in life to determine which one was mine. I was forced upon a path of perfection, and that is a very detrimental path to be on. And I ended up, you know, with all sorts of issues as a result of it, including but not limited to eating disorder. So, you know, I, I... really encourage you if you dealt with a perfectionist parent to look at that um, and really reflect on it and certainly see if maybe counseling might be good for you not only to heal from that and to really start to let yourself just be because the the um, strict and I, I, I really believe abusive uh, restrictions we place on ourselves as adult children of perfectionist parents is very detrimental to our health physically and emotionally. Um, I know that it carries on through generations, and I'm sure that if I had a child, it would have carried on through to my children. So I really encourage you to look at that and and heal that within yourself and certainly look at it if, if you have a child to see if you're imposing that upon your children as well. Even if that is unintentional, it can certainly be there. And I'll skip on through to... Uh, her last quote or last words on verbal abusive parents, verbally abusive parents. While there is no question that children can be damaged by put-downs from friends, teachers, siblings, and other family members, children are the most vulnerable to their parents. After all, parents are the center of a young child's universe, and if your all-knowing parents think bad things about you, they must be true. If mother is always saying you're stupid, then you're stupid. If father is always saying you're worthless, then you are. A child has no perspective from which to cast doubt on these assessments. When you take these negative opinions out of other people's mouths and put them into your unconscious, you are internalizing them, internalization of negative opinions, changing you are to I am, forms the foundation of low self-esteem. Besides significantly impairing your sense of yourself as a lovable, valuable, competent person, verbal abuse can create self-fulfilling negative expectations about how you will get along in the world. Anyone who's ever experienced verbal abuse or known someone that has throughout their childhood certainly recognizes that as truth, and I am one of them. Uh, Annette, did you want to add anything or, or say anything about this particular chapter before we move on to the next? I just think it's really important to understand that 
it goes into our subconscious since a lot of times uh, we are not really aware outwardly that that's where it's coming from because it is so deeply ingrained and you sometimes have to do some digging in order to, to find that and find out where it came from in order to change it. Agreed. Yeah, I think there's, um, you know, you and I discussing just as friends in the past and, and also on our show we've talked about um, the replaying of negative messages and negative tapes. And, and that's, when we use the word tape, which I think is an antiquated term these days, yeah. but, um, you know, playing the tapes over and over in your head of things that were said to you as a child. And it's very important to rid yourself of those toxic tapes, of those recordings that are, that are still in your head that replay often, especially in certain circumstances, and therefore impede your growth and, and keep you from realizing your full potential. So I agree. Realize where that comes from and then and heal it. And there are so many ways to heal, including working with this book. She does have like a workbook-oriented book here, so you can actually get this book and work through some of it. It would be best, as she also says, to work through it with a counselor, um, but you can certainly start here. We're moving on to the physical abusers. Um, she calls this chapter sometimes the bruises are on the outside too. Why do parents beat their kids? Most of us who have children have felt the urge to strike them at one time or another. These feelings can be especially strong when a child won't stop crying, nagging, or defying us. Sometimes it has less to do with the child's behavior than with our own exhaustion, stress level, anxiety, or unhappiness. A lot of us manage to resist the impulse to hit our children. Unfortunately, many parents are not so restrained. She talks about uh, the private Holocaust where there's no escape from it. And she uh, addresses the fact that, you know, you end up with PTSD because it is like growing up in a war zone. And then she talks about the parents who claim that physical abuse is for their child's own good. Now, this is going to hit a couple of you, I'm well aware, because, again, we live in West Texas. This is not only the Bible Belt, but people still strongly believe in a certain type of punishment here. And so this may ruffle some feathers. I'm reading it nonetheless because I'm, I tend to agree with her on this So because I was raised in the, in the physical punishment and it, it didn't do much of anything except add to the PTSD. Other abusers, instead of blaming someone else for their behavior, will try to justify it as being in the child's best interest. Many parents still believe that physical punishment is the only effective way to drive home a moral or behavioral point. Many of these lessons are delivered in the name of religion. Never has a book been as sorely misused as the Bible to justify beatings. It's absurd to believe that severe physical punishment will have any positive effects on a child. In fact, research indicates that physical discipline is not particularly effective as a punishment, even for specific undesirable behaviors. Beatings have proved to be only temporary deterrence, and they create in children strong feelings of rage, revenge fantasies, and self-hatred. It's quite clear that the mental, emotional, and often bodily harm caused by physical abuse far outweighs any momentary advantages. And I strongly agree. If you don't agree, of course, we would love to hear from you as well. Um, we, we get hate mail. We're okay with that. <laughs> so, 
If there's ever a time we say something on the show that you don't agree with, you can always send us a message and let us know. We'd love to cover any of your suggestions or comments on our show. It makes for a good show. So you can contact us, com backslash girlpowerhour, send us a message and let us know. Uh, she also discusses the parent that doesn't do anything about the abuse, which she discusses, which she determines is the passive abuser. And I agree. Um, just because there was a parent in your household that did not hit you, if that parent allowed that hitting to occur, regardless of how that hitting was disguised, uh, whether it was for religious purposes, whether it was for your own good, quote-unquote, um, or if it was just outright blatant physical attacks, if there was a parent allowing it in the home, they are still abusive. They are just a passive abuser. So I'm going to use a case that she uses. Kate is a case in point. When my father first started beating us, my sister and I would always scream for mom to help, but she never came. She just sat downstairs and listened to us screaming for her. It didn't take us long to realize she wasn't coming. She never stood up to my father. I guess she couldn't help it. No matter how many times I hear statements like, I guess she couldn't help it, they still upset me. This is from Susan Forward. Kate's mother could have helped. I told Kate that it was important for her to start looking at her mother's role realistically. Her mother should have stood up to Kate's father, or if she was afraid of him, she should have called the police. There is no excuse for a parent to stand by and allow his or her children to be brutalized. And then she discusses the issues that result from physical abuse, and I'm just going to read the titles. These are all just sub-chapters, so again, this book is invaluable. I cannot say that enough. By all means, go get it. Um, Issues that result from physical abuse, like learning to hate yourself and saying things like it's all my fault. And then the idea of abuse and love becoming a bewildering combination. People start to equate the two. Um, And I know that may sound odd to people that don't come from an abusive household, but people often wonder why someone doesn't leave an abusive partner. Well, if they grew up in abuse, that's all they know, and that is what love looks like. That's what family looks like. That's what normal looks like to them. Even if it's painful, it's what they know. And then she has a subchapter called The Keeper of the Family Secret. And I have to discuss really quickly a personal experience with that. Um, What she's talking about here is it's on the child to keep that secret about the family being abusive. Once that secret's out, a child becomes ostracized. If the child is the one to let that secret out, they become ostracized by the family. And even by the family that's not necessarily involved, like not directly involved, the passive abuser, which I find interesting, but I know it to be true because I experienced it myself. I grew up in an abusive home. It was psychologically abusive and physically abusive, abusive on many levels. And as I, you know, as a child, I was a rebel, so I called it out like I saw it as a child. Of course, I got punished more for it, but I did it. And um, as I grew older and became more strong within myself and obviously, you know, big enough to fight back, um, I definitely called it, you know, what it was and and then I really became stronger within my own personal empowerment, personal growth, and I started writing and calling it what it was. So it wasn't just my family that was hearing it from me, but now it was complete strangers 
hearing it from me, which of course is where the family does not ever want that truth to be revealed to the public. And as a writer, I write from the heart and I write from experience. So of course the truth came out. And although I don't consider it that I truly have any family because my immediate family has all passed away or been unaccounted for, I do have extended family and they did not like what they were reading and I did hear about it. And that's okay. They don't have to like it. Some people don't like the truth. That's fine with me. But if you are a survivor of physical abuse, of abuse of any kind, you have a right to call it what it is. And if someone has a problem with it, they have a problem with the truth, probably because they didn't do anything to stop it, not because that is what it is. So speak your truth. Stand strong in it. I encourage that. I do it, and I encourage it. And uh, the author of this book talks more about that later as well. So just to end note on the physically abusive parent. For many years, it was commonly believed that almost all battered children became battering parents. After all, this was the only role model they'd had. The current studies challenge these assumptions. In fact, not only have a bit many formerly abused children grown into non-abusing adults, but a number of these parents have great difficulty with even modest, non-physical methods of disciplining their children. In rebellion against the pain of their own childhoods, these parents shy away both from setting limits and from enforcing them. This, too, can have a negative impact on a child's development because children need the security of boundaries. But the harm done by over-permissiveness is usually far less significant than the damage done by a batterer. Now, let me interject really quickly and say, before I ask Annette what she has to say here, because I kind of feel like you would agree with me, um, yes, of course, the damage done by a batterer is far worse. And the author, nor are we, trying to say, she's not trying to say, nor are we trying to say that there is no damage done by an over-permissive parent, because by all means there is. Um, it's just what she is saying is that the damage is far greater by a batterer, but you have to remember that healthy parenting is about being an assertive parent. That means that you're not passive or aggressive, but you're assertive. And learning the difference is very important. The opposite of abuse, that passivity, is not necessarily better. It's not healthy. It's just the opposite. So if you are a parent who is a survivor of abuse and who if you've yet to treat that, if you've yet to heal that, and you have children, and you can see in yourself that you have become very passive because you don't want to be anything like your parents, first of all, kudos to not wanting to be anything like your parents. And also kudos to not carrying on that physical abuse. Those are two things you really need to honor yourself for. But it is important to learn how to set healthy boundaries and to do so in an assertive way so that you cannot simply be the opposite of your parents but you can be you and you as a parent rather than just a reaction to your own parents. Annette, do you have anything you wanted to add about that chapter? Well, when I was um, raising my kids, I did spank. Most of the spanking came out of frustration um, because of where I was in my life. And I don't see that it did a whole lot of good, <laughs> you know. Right. Um, I mean, it may have helped 
temporarily to stop something, but it never I don't think it was it was anything that made any um long term changes. Um and once I got to the point where um I was in a better place within myself and my whole situation, then that didn't happen anymore. Right. Um, I was anything but uh permissive because you can ask my kids. They they I did not I was not a I felt like I was their only parent, so I had to step up to the plate and I had to be the whole whole thing, mom, dad, everything. And um, so I was not permissive in any way. They knew there would be consequences if they did anything, and it would be consequences that would actually mean something to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I just think... You know, um, I wouldn't now if I was raising kids. Right. Um, I just wouldn't. But back then, that's where I was. And I think right. a lot of a lot of parents and I know about I know what it's like to be that woman and having their child spanked hard by the father. And saying that's enough, you know, it's too hard, that's enough, and the consequences. So I know what it's like. And it was not pleasant at all. So, you know, there were definitely um, consequences to standing up. And that you just have to do it, though. Yeah, you do. Um, you know, Annette, you and I talk about a lot <clears throat> the unforgivable sin of a parent is to choose someone over their children and we typically you're talking right. about a romantic partner. And in that situation, you know, you have to choose your children. And it and it's not to it doesn't reinforce the idea of vertical relationships, which if you don't know what I'm talking about, you're obviously supposed to have a relationship with your partner, you know, your significant other. You're not supposed to have codependent vertical relationships, like relationships with those who are like dependent on you, like your children. You're not supposed to make that your sole relationship. However, if there is an abuser in your home or if there is someone who is not healthy for them in your life, you're always supposed to choose, obviously, your child's safety, emotional and physical safety over another person, not vice versa. And so, yes, and, and, and let me say, too, these topics all hit all of us, not just those listening, but Annette and I as well. So we never talk about something that we haven't ourselves struggled with or haven't ourselves gone through. So these topics hit us as well. And some of this is hard for me to read, to be honest, without just kind of crying. So oh, yeah. um, it's, a, it's a difficult topics, difficult subjects, but subjects that have to be discussed because they're reality and they happen um, daily, unfortunately, in our world. And it's something we all need to know about and heal from and work on. Um, and, you know, as far as standing up and knowing that those consequences are going to be there, all of these decisions, including getting help, you know, for for growing up in in families like this, is hard. They're all hard. 
and there's consequences to that too. I just mentioned one, calling out your family and telling them, you know, telling people what really happened. There's consequences to that. There's consequences, of course, um, and it's hard. It's not easy, but nothing worth doing ever is. So we just have to do it, and that's how we gain our strength, and that's how we gain our empowerment. And Annette, always proud of you for all the steps you've taken in your life. Those of you that don't know Annette's story, it's an amazing one. And someday she's going to write a book about it, and we're all going to read it, and I'll read it on the show. (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to move on to uh, Ultimate Betrayal, which is the sexual abusers. Incest is perhaps the cruelest, most baffling of human experiences. It is a betrayal of the most basic trust between child and parent. It is emotionally devastating. The young victims are totally dependent on their aggressors, so they have nowhere to run, nowhere to run, and no one to run to. Protectors become persecutors, and reality becomes a prison of dirty secrets. Incest betrays the very, very heart of childhood. It's innocence. Now, I don't want to, I told Annette earlier, I'm a little afraid that we're going to start sounding like an audio book. I don't want to read and read and read, but the truth of the matter is this woman, Susan Forward, is an amazing author, and she has put things in a perspective that I honestly can't do any better with. So I would just like to read what she says. And one thing that I really want to read in its entirety is her definition of incest, which is a little bit long, but I think you'll understand why I'm reading it, because it isn't just what most people think that it is. There's more than just penetration involved, and it's not always physical. So I want to read it because I think people need to understand the definition, and it's a broad one, um, so that they're not involved in keeping this myth of what incest is or isn't. Incest is difficult to define because the legal and psychological definitions are worlds apart. The legal definition is extremely narrow, usually defining incest as sexual intercourse between blood relations. As a result, millions of people did not realize they were incest victims because they had not been penetrated. From a psychological point of view, incest covers a much wider range of behaviors and relationships. These include physical contact with a child's mouth, breast, genitals, anus, or any other body part that is done for the purpose of sexually arousing the aggressor. That aggressor does not have to be a blood relative. He or she can be anyone whom the child perceives as a family member, such as a step-parent or an in-law, and I would even say a very close family friend. There are other types of incestuous behaviors that are extremely damaging, even though they may not involve any physical contact with the child's body. For For example, if an aggressor exposes himself or masturbates in front of the child or even persuades the child to pose for sexually suggestive photographs, he is committing a form of incest. Now, she's using he loosely because women do this too, so I just want to make that clear. We must add to our definition of incest that the behavior has to be kept secret. A father who affectionately hugs and kisses his child is doing nothing that needs to be kept secret. In fact, such touching touching is essential to a child's emotional well-being. But if that father strokes the child's genitals or makes the child stroke his, that is an act that must be kept secret, and that is incest. There are also a number of far more subtle behaviors that I call psychological incest. Victims of psychological incest may not have been actually touched or assaulted sexually, but they have experienced an invasion of their sense of privacy or safety. 
I'm talking about invasive acts like spying on a child who is dressing or bathing or repeatedly making seductive or sexually explicit comments to a child. While none of these behaviors fit the literal definition of incest, the victims often feel violated and suffer many of the same psychological symptoms as actual incest victims do. Let me quickly share with you my experience there. Growing up as a child, um, I experienced that uh, in in the form of someone walking in while I was changing, uh, being raised by my grandparents. They, in a very dysfunctional home, there was not any respect for privacy or boundaries. And regardless of the intention, it felt very violating. It, it was not it's something that I wanted to happen. I constantly complained about it and set a verbal boundary, and yet it was constantly crossed um, and followed with a statement like, I changed your diapers. Well, once you hit a certain age, you're no longer in diapers. It's no longer okay because you no longer need to change my diapers and you don't need to walk in on me changing. It's a boundary. And crossing that boundary without any respect for someone's privacy is a boundary violation. Especially, I mean, always it is, but especially if your child is stating that they don't like it, um, then it's not okay. You know, you really need to respect that with your kids because it, it, it is something that they're going to internalize and sense as a sexual violation. And that is exactly how it manifested for me. Um, also, you know, having adults whistle at me, of course they were just trying to be cute, but at the same time it's really not cute because you're a child. <laughs> and that is considered, you know, a, a more of a, a cat call. It, uh, it's, you know, on many levels something that uh, – as a woman, I certainly take as, a, as an offense, but it was also as a child, very felt like a violation for me. So something that we all need to be uh, aware of and, and really remember that the way kids experience things um, and the way that we intend them don't always work out the same. So always be aware that your kids have boundaries too. And if you don't want them walking in on you naked, they probably don't want that either, regardless of the fact that you changed the diapers. Let me just go over quickly the myths, the myths that she states, just just so everybody kind of understands where she's coming from, and then I'll kind of move on into reclaiming your life because that's the most important piece. One myth, an in, incest is a rare occurrence. The reality, all responsible studies and data, including those from the U.S. Department of Human Services, show that at least one out of every 10 children is molested by a trusted family member before the age of 18. Myth, incest happens only in poor or uneducated families or in isolated backward communities. Reality, incest is ruthlessly democratic. It cuts across all socioeconomic levels. Incest can occur as easily in your family as in the back hills of Appalachia. Myth, incest aggressors are social and sexual deviants. Reality, a typical incest aggressor can be anybody. There is no common denominator or profile. They are hardworking, respectable, church-going, seemingly average men and women. Myth. Incest is a reaction to sexual deprivation. Reality. Most aggressors have acted sex lives within marriage and often through extramarital affairs as well. They turn children either for feelings of power and control or for unconditional non-threatening love that only a child can provide. Myth. Children, especially teenage girls, are seductive and at least partially responsible for being molested. 
reality. Most children try out their sexual feelings and impulses in innocent and exploratory ways with people to whom they are bonded. Little girls flirt with their fathers and little boys with their mothers. Some teenagers are openly provocative. However, it is always 100% the adult's responsibility to exercise appropriate control in these situations and not to act out their own impulses. Most incest stories are not true. They are actually fantasies derived from the child's own sexual yearnings. Reality. This myth was created by Sigmund Freud and has permeated psychiatric teaching and practice since the beginning of the century. In his psychoanalytic practice, Freud was getting so many reports of incest from the daughters of respected middle-class Viennese families that he groundlessly decided they couldn't all be true. To explain their frequency, he concluded that the events occurred primarily in his parents' imagination, in his patients' imaginations. The legacy of Freud's error is that thousands, perhaps millions, of incest victims have been, and in some cases continue to be, denied the validation and support they need, even when they are able to muster the courage to seek professional help. This is devastating. Myth, children are molested more often by strangers than by someone they know. Reality. The majority of sexual crimes committed against children are perpetuated or sorry, perpetrated by trusted members of the family. And unfortunately, uh, most of us know that to be very, very true, simply because more and more these days, this book is, is a bit dated, but um, more and more these days we're seeing movies and reading more books about uh, people coming forward and <clears throat> talking about the reality of their families and, and the fact that they were molested by family members. It is an unfortunate occurrence, but it is the reality and something that we need to look at as a society. Um, not to braze over this topic at all, but I'm going to skip through to uh, a piece that <clears throat> I thought was very important so that in the interest of time, and again, get the book. <laughs> Um, she talks about the consequences of, and these are just a few, obviously there are many consequences of um, sexual abuse. One is that they don't know what a loving relationship feels like and that they're robbed of their sexuality. Um, there are many victims that talk about being unable to have sex without being haunted by flashbacks. And then there are also those who will overcompensate and even become involved in sex industry, you know, pornography or, or things like that um, because they've only been used for sex and they have been exploited so much that that's really all they feel that they're good for. However, they are still repelled by sex and certainly by intimacy involved with it. However, there's good news here, and I do want to share this at the end of this chapter. One thing that I found very important, especially for survivors of sexual abuse, is that many people are shocked when she says that the incest victims that she's worked with are usually the healthiest members of their family. And here's what she says. After all, the victim usually has the symptoms, self-blame, depression, destructive behavior, sexual problems, suicide attempts, substance abuse, etc. while the rest of the family often seems outwardly healthy. But despite this, it is usually the victim who ultimately has the clearest vision of the truth. She was forced to sacrifice herself to cover up the craziness and the stress of the family system. All her life, she was the bearer of the family secret. She lived with tremendous emotional pain in order to protect the myth of the good family. But because of all this pain and conflict, the victim is usually the first to seek help. Her parents, on the other hand, will almost always refuse to let go of their denials and defenses. They refused to deal with reality. With treatment, most victims are able to reclaim their dignity and their power 
recognizing a problem and seeking help is a sign not only of health, but of courage. And let me say it again, she uses she there loosely because we all know boys are molested as well. They are victims of incest, so I'm not leaving that out. Um, Annette, did you want to add anything really quick on this chapter before I move to reclaiming your life? Well, I just, it is much more prevalent than we um, give it credit for. Mm -hmm. So Um, much more. I don't know statistics at all, but, you know, if you look in your neighborhood, there's a big number of kids Mm -hmm. who are being sexually abused in one way or another, either at home or outside of the home. And um, it is much more prevalent than we we want to think it is, unfortunately. Yeah. But it's just important to get the message out there and allow kids to know that if you say something, we're going to believe you. And they need the help. That's all there is to it. They need the help, and we need to stop sweeping it under the rug. And I for agree. me, I was I was in my I guess I was in my fifties when I realized what had happened to me. Mm-hmm. So that was a long time to just brush it under the carpet mm-hmm. and make excuses for it. But um I think a lot of people do that. A lot of people do that. And, you know, again, bravo to you for looking at it and getting the help that you needed. Um, And I commend you as always. But I also want to say that you bring up a great point, the idea that you realized it. Because we've talked about in the past when when we discuss the other chapters in this book, which you can go to our archive shows, blogtalkradio.com backslash girlpowerhour and and see the archive show from last week or hear the archive show from last week. But, you know, we talked about you want to stay in denial. Your brain really does a lot to not allow you to uh, look at that pain involved in realizing what happened and having to really go through it and face it. There's some pain and some anxiety and fear. But obviously you have to to get past it, to move forward and to heal and to grow and to empower yourself. But again, uh, yeah, so many of us not only brush it under the rug, but also make excuses for why it happened, maybe even come up with reasons why it wasn't incest, it wasn't molestation, it didn't happen to me. Uh, We don't want to think that that happened. You know, anytime you've been a victim of a crime, you kind of, you experience it and then you go through the reasons why that, no, that couldn't have happened to me. And then there are people who will experience survivor's guilt um, or a victim's guilt. You know, even if you're robbed, you start to, well, I shouldn't have left the door unlocked or I shouldn't have, you know, the blame is completely on the the person that committed the crime. But you'll start to blame yourself and look for reasons why it happened and why it shouldn't have, you know, uh, there's so many things that go through our minds. It's part of denial. And that's that that first piece of the grief, and a lot of us get stuck there. So it's important to unstick yourself and move forward into the other stages of grief so that you can eventually get to that acceptance piece where you're healed and uh, at least able to accept that it did in fact happen. And now let's look at it 
and, and how that's affected me and heal from it. I don't want to skip over this part, but I'm going to have to in the interest of time. This is about uh, the family system, and I just want to make a quick statement about it. The family system is, in fact, a system. So if you're involved in a family, you're involved in a system. Systems, as we know, from our judicial system to our school systems to any other system we experience in our lives can get very sick. And it continues to stay sick until someone breaks out of it or breaks the cycle. So, and I'm talking about generational. When you have a family system, it continues throughout generations. If it was sick in the past, to be sick in the future, until someone breaks that cycle and says, no, no more. I'm not doing this. I'm breaking this cycle. It stops here. You know, the buck stops here. It ends with me. And so this chapter is not one that should be skipped. If you get this book, by all means, read it. You'll, it'll help you understand the family system and how it works and how families try to keep a sense of balance and homeostasis and therefore, un- unfortunately, end up protecting the sickness within the family rather than trying to get help for the family. So let's skip on to part two. And this is about reclaiming your life. Now, you need to read through part one. Obviously, this is the ooey-gooey stuff, but you've got to read through part one to really identify with what happened and understand how it's affected you. When you get to reclaiming, there's a workbook that she has back here where you can really work with, you know, and you can do this on your own, but you can also work with a counselor, um, which I advise doing um, just so you can really see things objectively because a counselor helps you do that. But she does make a statement in the beginning of this, and she says, if you abuse drugs or alcohol to deaden your feelings, you must deal with your compulsion before attempting to work in this book. There's no way to gain control of your life if you are being controlled by an addiction. The work in this book should be undertaken only after a minimum of six months of sobriety. Your emotions are extremely raw in the beginning phase of recovery, and there is always the danger that uncovering and exploring painful childhood experiences during this time may cause you to slip back into substance abuse. It would be both unrealistic and irresponsible of me to suggest that if you follow the path I outline, all your problems will disappear overnight. But I can assure you that if you do this work, you'll discover exciting new ways of relating to your parents and to others. You will be able to divine who you are and how you want to live your life, and you will discover a new sense of confidence and self-worth. The first chapter here is you don't have to forgive. I'm going to read this really quickly and kind of go through this piece. At this point, you may be asking yourself, isn't that the first step to forgive my parents? My answer is no. This may shock, anger, dismay, or confuse many of you. Most of us have been led to believe exactly the opposite, that forgiveness is the step toward healing. In fact, it is not necessary to forgive your parents in order to feel better about yourself and to change your life. Certainly, I'm aware that this flies in the face of some of the most cherished religions, spiritual, philosophical, and psychological principles. According to the Judeo-Christian ethic, to err is human, to forgive divine. I'm also aware that there are many experts in the various helping professions who sincerely believe that forgiveness is not only the first step, but often the only step necessary for inner peace. I disagree completely. If you want to know more about why she disagrees, again, get the book. I'm not trying to braze over it. Um, I just don't have time to read all of it, but I will read what she says about the forgiveness trap. One of the most dangerous things about forgiveness is that it undercuts your ability to let go of your pent-up emotions. How to you acknowledge your anger against a parent whom you've already forgiven. 
Responsibility can go only one of two places, outward onto the people who have hurt us or inward into yourself. And that last piece often results in depression. So if that's something that you struggle with, you might look at, is there someone in my life that I've forgiven that I have not placed anger or responsibility on and I've not dealt with the anger I have toward them um, and I have alternatively pulled that inward and pushed it onto myself. Uh, She has a chapter after that. I'm a grown-up. Why don't I feel like it? That's the idea of realizing that you still feel like you're a child because there's a certain level of enmeshment. Um, She says there are basically two two types of enmeshment. Enmeshment, The first involves continually giving in to your parents in order to placate them, and the second involves doing just the opposite. You may be just as enmeshed if you scream at, threaten, or become totally alienated from your parents. In this case, as contradictory as it may seem, your parents still have enormous control over how you feel and behave. Now, there's a difference in alienating and making a statement it's one thing to not see your parents because it, you know, makes you feel a certain way. It's another to tell your parents, you're toxic for me. I'm cutting this off because I've got to grow. And I've already tried to work things out with you. I've already tried to accept you as you are and accept myself as I am. But because of your issues, because of the issues here, that isn't working. The boundaries aren't respected and I have to move on with my life. That can happen. But simply not seeing them and then avoiding phone calls and avoiding text messages, that's a different thing. That's alienation. She also talks about defining who's really responsible and knowing that you are not responsible for any of the abuse that occurred in your childhood that happened to you. She also talks about confrontation, that you need to confront your parents and confront your family. She says confrontation means facing your parents thoughtfully and courageously about your painful past and your difficult present It's the most frightening and at the same time most empowering act that you will ever perform. And she talks about how to do that and why to do that. And she also talks about confronting dead parents, you know, writing an unsent letter, which um, you can write unsent letter to parents you're estranged from as well. Uh, But she does discuss that too. So obviously, again, get the book. I cannot say that enough. It's invaluable. She talks about healing the incest wound. And she says, professional help is a must for adults who were sexually abused as children. Nothing in my experience responds more dramatically and completely to therapy despite the depth of damage. And then she talks about breaking the cycle. This is the last thing I'll read from the book. And again, I've skipped over so many great points. So I just want you to really understand there's so much more to read, so much more to get out of this. But here's a beautiful place that she ends For me, breaking the cycle means to stop acting like a victim or to stop acting like your abusive or inadequate parent. You no longer play the helpless, dependent child with your parents, children, friends, colleagues, authority figures, and parents, and you get help if you find yourself striking out at your spouse or children in ways that make you ashamed. Though the changes you make begin with yourself, you will find the effects to be much broader reaching. By breaking the cycle, you are protecting your children from the toxic beliefs, rules, and experiences that colored so much of your childhood. You may be changing the nature of your family interactions for generations to come. And that is the last yeah. piece that she's... Okay. Hello. <laughs> and that is the, that is the last piece that... And that is the last piece that she speaks on... Well, it's actually not, the, not where she ends, but um, in terms of breaking the cycle and it speaks to the 
the system I was talking about earlier, the idea that um, that sick system continues through generations until someone says no more. It stops here and breaks that cycle. And so I encourage you all, anyone listening who resonated with anything in that book, anything we read this show or, or last show um, in, in our discussions, by all means, go purchase it. It's invaluable. It, it's very helpful. Even if you're in counseling, even if you're already doing the work, it's a really good tool to have to add to your tool belt um, in gaining the life skills and tools to to continue to grow and heal and become more empowered is that is our goal is to just become more empowered every day. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you for sharing all that information. It's a ton of information, and um, it is not not always easy, but it is very, very important. Yeah, it's a difficult, uh, that's a difficult book to read. You know, I know that it's going to be, it's one of those things where kind of like a uh, a wound that gets infected. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. sometimes just easier not to look at it because it's disgusting or gross or it makes us uncomfortable or wheezy or whatever, queasy or whatever. But at the same time, if you don't look at it, the infection gets worse. So you yeah. have to look at it and you have to not only look at it, you got to clean it out and let it heal. So it's it's time to just do the work and 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 stop putting that off. It's hard, but you're all strong enough, you're all fierce, and you can all do it. So it's time to just just make no more excuses and do it. Today is the day. Awesome, awesome. Well, we've got a great couple of next shows coming up. Uh, next Wednesday, we have Elizabeth Harbin back with us. She's going to be talking about The Artist's Way, the book, um, and creativity. Now, I went through The Artist's Way class with her, and she's a fantastic facilitator. Um, I grew so much 12 weeks, you would not believe, and we'll talk a little bit about that next week also. And then the following week, which will be the 13th, we have Skylar Liberty Rose with us. She is an empowerment coach for women. She really tells it like it is. All the good stuff, all the bad stuff. Admits she's not perfect, um, which is awesome. (laughs) Makes us all feel better. So um, (laughs) tune in for the next two weeks. And if you're not able to join us live, then Go ahead and listen in the archives because we're really excited to have them both on the show. So anything else, Tasha? No, just again, I can't stress enough how excited we are to have Elizabeth back on. Um, I keep telling Annette, can we have her on again? Can we have her on again? And Annette's like, well, I mean, really, I think people might want to spread that out. <laughs> I, was just, I just love her. I just fell in love with her the minute we had her on. I had never had the pleasure of meeting her. No, just excited. And then, of course, to have Skylar on. I can't praise that woman enough. So by all means, tune in to the next two weeks. And if you can't get to the archives, they're going to be great shows. I'm excited. Well, we will talk with everyone next week on Wednesday. So have a great week. Mm-hmm.